I'm often intimidated to have to get up and preach after a great children's sermon. I have a great honor and respect for those who do children's messages. Is Sarah still here? This, Sarah, thank you. That was a great job. Uh, that job, I think, is sometimes more difficult than for me to preach to the adults and to teach seminary students, yet what you do is no less significant. So good job this morning. Well, will you, would you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, may our hearts be open to receive what you would have for your children, for your body. May we be transformed by your words. May we be equipped for your mission in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I understand you've been going through a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's a picture of the coming kingdom, I assume, that you're beginning to understand. It's, a, it's the ethics of the kingdom. It's what we are to gradually see more and more of, of God's uh, reign in our world. And part of the Sermon on the Mount teaches us to pray, as we did this morning, your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come. But what do we mean when we pray that, your kingdom come? If the kingdom of heaven is coming, in fact, is here... But as citizens of that kingdom, we can't see it or we can't experience it. It can be easy to lose confidence in the coming kingdom. Well, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus teaches us more about his coming kingdom in the form of parables. He starts with the parable of the soils, teaching us that his kingdom is first and forever created through the word of God. It's God's word that creates, establishes, grows, and sustains the coming kingdom. And as the kingdom comes, the the parable of the wheat and tares then teaches us that the way of the kingdom is inclusive. That is, it contains both good and bad. And we're called to coexist, the good and the bad living together, until Jesus returns to fully establish his kingdom. And only then will there be a separation at the final judgment. So when we pray your kingdom come, we're also praying your word come and your way come. And this morning, I want us to learn to pray your confidence come, your confidence come. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 13. We already heard from the children's sermon about this. But hear God's word to us once again. Here is another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants and grows into a tree where birds can come and find shelter in its branches. Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast used by a woman baking bread. And even though she used a large amount of flour, that is, three measures, The yeast permeated every part of the dough. Jesus always used stories and illustrations like these when speaking to the crowds. In fact, he never spoke to them without using such parables. This fulfilled the prophecy that said, I will speak to you in parables. I will explain mysteries hidden since the creation of the world. Now, it doesn't take too much observation to conclude that it can be difficult to see the evidence of the kingdom of God coming 
One of the hallmarks of God's kingdom is Jesus exercising his power to act and control for the Father's glory and for our good. In other words, Jesus' activity is always about working through the Holy Spirit to glorify the Father and to create good in our lives. In light of the world's conflicts, political divisions and racial tensions and even family discord, it can be hard to see or experience that coming kingdom. Consequently, at times we lose our confidence in Jesus' statement that the kingdom of God has come. And when we lose confidence, we can lose our way. We lose our ability to live as citizens of the kingdom in word and deed, and we lose confidence to boldly represent the kingdom. There was an abbot of a monastery And he called a novice monk into his office and instructed him to give the homily at the next morning's chapel. The novice was struck with fear. The next morning, chapel came, and he stood in the pulpit. The brothers were there. But his hands were trembling, his knees were knocking, his voice was quivering, and there was a long pause before he spoke. And then he asked a question, Did you know what I'm going to say? Well, they had no idea. So all of their heads went back and forth almost in unison. And he said, neither do I, so let's stand for the benediction. (laughs) Well, the next day was almost an exact repeat of the day before. All the brothers sat there before him. His hands shook, his knees knocked, his voice trembled, long pause. Do you know what I'm going to say, he asked. Well, after the previous day's experience, they had a pretty good idea, so all of their heads nodded yes. Well, then there's no need for me to tell you. Let's stand for the benediction. Well, by this time, the abbot was angry beyond description. He brought the young man into his office and said, if you do that again, you're going to be in solitary confinement, eat bread and water for 30 days, and receive any other punishment I can think of. Now, tomorrow morning, give the homily. Do it right. Well, the third day, the chapel attendants hit an all-time high. Everyone was there to see what he would say, and it was almost an exact repeat. He stood, trembling, voice quivering, and after a long silence asked, Do you know what I'm going to say? Well, after three days of this, half of them had a pretty good idea, and they nodded their heads yes. Well, the other half noticed the switch from day to day, and they weren't so sure what to expect, so they shook their heads no. Well, the novice observed this and said, Let those who know tell those who don't, let's stand for the benediction. (laughs) Well, My point of that story is is that, like this novice monk, it can be easy to lose our confidence when it seems as if only the kingdom of this world is advancing and not the kingdom of God. But Jesus' two parables here are meant to restore that confidence in the coming kingdom so we can be bold about proclaiming and living out the coming kingdom. You see, our expectations of God's kingdom do not differ much from the Jewish expectation in Jesus' time. They expected the messianic kingdom to be established suddenly and decisively. That was John the Baptist's trouble. That's why John the Baptist, while he is in prison, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we be looking for someone else? A strange question coming from John the Baptist, who had said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He prepared the way for Jesus. He was pointing to Jesus. And now he is in a prison cell because Herod didn't take likes to him being called an adulterer by John the Baptist. And so John is asking, 
Why? Why hasn't your kingdom come decisively and triumphantly right now? That's what I expected. And he's sitting in a cold, hard cell with Herod upstairs partying, and Jesus is out having dinner and lunch with prostitutes and tax collectors. And so John is asking, are you really the Messiah? You see, we expect, too, that if we have church where the gospel is preached and Jesus is exalted and we do some right and good things, that the kingdom of Christ will likewise be established immediately and triumphantly. But these parables beg to differ. The parable of the mustard seed and the yeast tell us that although in the end the result is going to be much larger, the beginning is very small. In fact, the kingdom's beginning are almost invisible as described in these parables. But praise be to God, the kingdom's presence eventually produces something much bigger, and it comes to dominate and pervade all of life. You see, most of Jesus' parables have a kind of surprise or twist to them to make his point. The mustard seed's no exception. The smallest seeds becoming a tree is, is surprising, almost a supernatural creative growth. Now, the type of tree here is debated by scholars. Is it the 25-foot Salvadoria persica or the 10-foot Synipsis negra? Makes no difference because either one makes the point. What starts out small will end up big, big enough to make a home for many birds. Now, this bird's imagery is pretty significant. That's why we included the Ezekiel passage, and I want to read that to you again. Ezekiel 17, 22 through 24 again says, And the sovereign Lord says, I will take a tender shoot from the top of a tall cedar, and I will plant it on the top of Israel's highest mountain. It will become a a noble cedar, sending forth its branches and producing seeds. Birds of every sort will nest in it, finding shelter beneath its branches. And all the trees will know that it is I, the Lord who cuts down the tall tree, And helps the short tree to grow tall. It is I who makes the green tree wither and gives new life to the dead tree. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will do what I have said. See, this is Ezekiel's image of God restoring David's rule over God's people. Contrary to all appearances at the time, God's king would would rule and, and flourish, even incorporating other nations, the Gentiles, into his kingdom. And while the tall tree and the green tree will be cut down and wither, representing the nation of Babylon and the nation of Egypt, the people of other nations will flock like birds into the tree God will plant and will find shelter and peace. See, God is promising to restore the house of David through the descendants, through his descendant Jesus, and the whole world will benefit from it. It brings back our original image that we talked about of, of God's kingdom as a place where both good and bad will coexist for a while. It's a place of shelter for those who rest in its branches. The church is that place, a place to find rest for our weary souls, a place to hide in the shelter of the Almighty for all who are weary and heavy burdened. The kingdom grows in surprising ways, albeit slowly. But it becomes a place of shelter for birds of every sort, people of all kinds, people from all walks of life. Now, the parable of the yeast is similar 
It slowly permeates bread dough until it penetrates it throughout. The woman in the parable makes a huge loaf of bread, three measures, which would be comparable to about 50 pounds of flour, enough to feed over 100 people. But again, the point of the parable is not so much the growth as the contrast. What starts out as a a pinch of yeast and a huge batch of dough ends up present in all of the bread. Once yeast is introduced, permeation is inevitable. Once yeast is introduced, permeation is inevitable. Jesus, in effect, is saying to his disciples and to us this morning, we may seem like a small movement, but eventually we will permeate the whole neighborhood, the whole city, the whole country, and the whole world. The main point of these two parables is the contrast between the littleness of the means and the largeness of the ends. Let me say this again. The main point of these two parables is the contrast between the littleness of the means and the largeness of the ends. Jesus is teaching to have confidence in his little ministry and his little gospel because it will become a sheltering tree and a nourishing loaf. Shelter and nourishment that equips us with a confidence to proclaim and live in the words and deeds of the coming kingdom. The connection between the seed and the yeast is the smallness of the agent, but with big and permeating results. You see, the gospel of the kingdom, by most worldly standards, seems small. When we compare the stories of Jesus to the political ideologies or global economies of our time, they can appear minuscule. Yet over the long haul, the stories of Jesus, the gospel of the King us, moves us into meaningful mission, drives us into deeper devotion, and heads us into healing hurts. Throughout history, there have been many philosophies and economic forces that have pounded on the church. But the church is like an anvil that has worn out many hammers over the years. Why ideologies fly for a season, they eventually die, but the church lives on. But here's the thing. The apparent smallness of the kingdom can scandalize us sometimes. That is, we often become so enamored with the largeness of other things, and we become ashamed of the kingdom's smallness. So we're tempted to supplement the story to make it appear more attractive. We lack confidence in the coming kingdom so we contrive contemporary realities of the church. The tree's not growing large enough. The bread's not rising fast enough. And so we manufacture our own replica. But plastic trees and plastic bread provides no real shelter and no real sustenance. For while it is characteristic for a seed and for a yeast to be small, it's also characteristic for them to be alive and to permeate. They may seem irreverently small, but they are big with life. That's the reality that bursts into this story. The gospel, small and hidden in the world, burgeons, bubbles, bursts, until at last what began minutely ends massively. The point and the promise of the seed and the yeast are not that the whole world be be converted, but that the little gospel has big effects. Many are called, but few are chosen. 
And these parables teach the qualitative change that takes place in the fruitful few. The bigness promised is not to be seen in a quantitative way as worldly bigness, but in a qualitative way as kingdom business, bigness. The fruit of a good life. The body of Christ, the church, becoming trees of shelter and loaves of bread for needy people and needy places. We lose our confidence in God's coming kingdom by trusting in the things of this world. By making good things into ultimate things, which becomes a formula for idol worship. Yet we always seem to have a sense, rightly, that those things we put our confidence in won't be here in ten years. You see, if you're sitting under the shelter of a metal tree, it will eventually rust. Or if we're sitting under a golden tree, somebody's going to come around and steal it. The only place to find true shelter is under the, tr- the true truth of God's kingdom. So in the previous parables in chapter 13, we learned that the kingdom will suffer some setbacks. Contributing to our lack of confidence and our discouragement at times. You see, only one in four soils produces fruit that lasts. And the kingdom suffers opposition. The enemy sows weeds in the midst of the wheat in the middle of the night. But here we're given confidence that the kingdom will grow into a large sheltering tree and it will permeate every part becoming a nourishing loaf. The kingdom will rarely, if ever, be front page news because its standard method of operation is barely visible to the eye of publicity. Yet while the kingdom may be hidden from the headlines, Jesus promises he will reveal its mysteries to us. As the prophecy said, I will speak to you in parables. I will explain mysteries hidden since the creation of the world. Commentator Dale Bruner gives a a great parable of trust and confidence using their cat. Clement of Alexandria. They also had a companion cat, Archbishop Thomas Cramner. But a local coyote ate the archbishop. Consequently, when their cat Clement goes outside, he lives in terror. He looks around as though it's a jungle and he's terrified. But when he comes in the house, he lies on the floor right between the kitchen and the dining room where the family walks most frequently and falls asleep, purring away in total trust and confidence. The family could easily step on and squash Clement's head, but he trusts them. The cat, Clement of Alexandria, lives in complete and total confidence in his human companions. So every time Bruner sees Clement just lying there, he says to himself, that's what Jesus wants me to do, to trust him to have confidence in him. It's the kind of trust and confidence Jesus wants us to have because we live in his kingdom that provides a sheltering tree and a nourishing loaf, even amidst the world's tragedies and our personal trials. So when we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, we also pray your word come and your way come, and we pray your confidence come. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for the truth that your kingdom is indeed here and is coming. We live in the already of your kingdom, but the not yet of your kingdom. And so, Lord, by this word today, we pray that you would give us increased faith. For that's the way our faith comes, by the preaching of your word. So, Lord, build our confidence, build our trust. Give us eyes to see the mysteries of your kingdom, to see glimpses of your kingdom in your midst, in our midst, that we might with great confidence go about your mission tomorrow morning, this coming week, and this coming year to proclaim, indeed, your kingdom coming. In Jesus' name, amen.